Well, that sums up in many ways the passage we read this morning and focus upon from Luke chapter 19, where Jerusalem is rejecting the Messiah, but those who do find life in Christ will be raised with Jesus. Luke chapter 19, I'd like to read the story of the triumphal entry all the way to the end of the chapter, but to focus on verses 41 through 44, where Jesus weeps and laments over Jerusalem. Luke 19, at verse 28, we read the word of the Lord. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew to drew near to Bethany, or Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you, to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Let's bow our hearts together and ask the Lord to visit us in his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich privilege that is ours as your people to come to the word of God to hear it declared to us. We thank you, Lord, for the freedoms we have in this land to openly worship you and to proclaim the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the strength of body and mind to attend 
And we thank you, Lord, above all for the promise of your Holy Spirit, that you have promised to use your word in the preaching of it for the nourishment of our souls. And so, God, we ask that you will keep your word to us, that you will give, not because we deserve, but because you've promised to those who ask. You will give and they will receive. Heavenly Father, then we pray, bless us, that our hearts may praise you and give glory to the Redeemer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Congregation of Christ, it's always, I think, a bit overwhelming, isn't it, to read of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. We, we hope this Friday night to, to think specifically on the death of Christ on the cross, but we recognize already in everything that leads up to it, there is a suffering for our Lord Jesus. And we're, we're awed, aren't we, that, that Jesus Christ comes to the cross not as one who's pulled there as some unwilling victim, but Jesus with resolute determination, he seeks the cross. He, he marches into Jerusalem. He creates the crisis. He calls for the cross. He's the priest who has come to offer the sacrifice of his life for our sins. And as we read these things, of course, we, we know that it's only a small fraction of the glory that, that we can humanly conceive, that the Son of God has come in human flesh, to bear the catastrophic curse of God against our sin. But we have to work, don't we, and pray that God will help us to, to see what this means. One of the things that, that I've become more and more conscious of over the years in studying the, the passion narratives, and one of the things that I, I try to remind myself of every time I, I read the, the story of Christ's suffering, and I, I would encourage you to remind yourself of this as well, is to, is to know that there's no accidents in anything that happens and that every detail has redemptive significance. It's, it's too easy for us sometimes to read the gospel accounts and think that Jesus just goes here, he goes there, things happen. It's all sort of random. And maybe even to read the, the sufferings of Jesus in his last week and to, and to think that there's just there's little different snippets and things that happen, but they have no real correlation to anything. We have to believe, don't we, that if God rules over every hair on our heads, he certainly ruled every detail of Christ's life. And we have to believe that, that the Father did not lay upon his Son any more suffering than was necessary for our salvation. And if we understand that there is nothing accidental here, and that Jesus Christ at every turn is fulfilling all righteousness for our sakes, then when we come to our passage this morning, our, our sermon text here, verses 41 through 44, then we have to believe, don't we, that the tears of our Lord Jesus over Jerusalem are part of our redemption. They're part of Jesus saving us. And so this morning, I invite you to look at this text with me under the theme, the weeping and lamentation of God's supreme office bearer brings us salvation. And I have several points I want to bring before you, but the first one is this. I'd have you notice the person, the person whom Jerusalem is rejecting. And I would fasten your attention upon these tears of Jesus but as he comes upon Jerusalem, he bursts out into tears. What an amazing thing this is to ponder. Now, the setting is what we call the triumphal entry. Boys and girls, Jesus, uh, on that last week of his life on earth, he, 
he comes into Jerusalem. And you, we, we read about it there. You heard how it went that Jesus sent his disciples to get the colt of a donkey. And they brought him. They borrowed him. They, they claimed him in the name of Jesus for the Messiah. And then they laid their clothes upon him. They set Jesus on this colt and they began to lead him. And people, the, the disciples who had followed Jesus, began to lay down their garments on the road, making making a, a coat of cloaks, and Jesus rode over them. And as Jesus came from Bethany and Bethphage, cities that were probably on the other side of the Mount of Olives, he approaches now the descent of the Mount of Olives. And from that point now, the crowd can see the glorious city of Jerusalem laid out map-like. And perhaps it's at that very moment then that the crowd bursts out into praise. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're leading this great Jesus to the capital city. And this pilgrim crowd rejoices. This is the place where the tribes go up. This is the place where the temple is built. This is the place where the kings have have reigned. And yet as they burst forth in praise, Luke brings into the picture a jarring sound in the midst of all the jubilation. We read at verse 41 that as Jesus drew near, as he saw the city, he wept over it. Broke out weeping. When Jesus comes to the beautiful city, the glorious dwelling place of David and Saul, when he comes to the place where where sacrifices had been offered day after day and year after year for centuries, all of them foretelling and typifying the final Lamb of God who who would lay down his life for the sin of the world. And when he looks upon the city now, knowing that this city will despise him and reject him and crucify him. And in rejecting their Messiah will reap the eternal condemnation of God. Jesus weeps. It's an amazing thing here, isn't it, to behold our Savior. His tears. This is nothing we should take lightly, to see the Son of God in human nature weeping. Maybe you know about uh, Roman Catholic weeping icons. You've heard of this? They believe that images of Jesus, a painting or a stone sculpture, will miraculously at times begin to, to, to have literal tears running down. Then all the people will gather. There's another weeping icon, and it's, it's thought of as some miraculous, wonderful thing. Should all give attention to and adoration to. Well, Luke describes for us something far more wonderful than a weeping piece of stone. Describes to us here the weeping of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And why are these tears so wonderful? Well, I think you only begin to understand why these tears are so necessary and not superfluous. Why these tears are so glorious when you see what John Calvin meant when he said there was nothing which Christ more ardently desired than to execute the office which the Father had committed to him. There was nothing that Christ longed for more than to fulfill the assignment to execute the office. And that office was to gather the lost sheep of Israel and to be their savior from sin. 
It's interesting that Christ comes as the Christ, which means anointed one. He's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And all those office bearers in the Old Testament were human. Right? God didn't assign angels to be the prophet, priest, and king of his people in the Old Testament. God wanted a king who was from among the people. God wanted a a prophet that when he preached judgment, he felt it. He was one with the people. And he wanted a priest that when he came into the holy place to intercede for God's people, he sympathized with them. He was one of them. And when Christ comes as the supreme office bearer of God, he is truly human. 100% God, but oh, he is 100% man. And he is bound with us in our humanity. And he fully partakes of human emotions. And when he sees the devastation that will come upon the city of Jerusalem 40 years later, when he foresees that, he grieves. Someone has pointed out, you know, we might hear about poor people somewhere and we, we kind of feel bad for them, maybe not really. But when you go to visit them, when you go to some poor place and see kids in rags, when you see the squalor, when you, when you maybe see one of their little shacks and see a sick mother lying there and, and children who are hungry, shoeless, bloated stomachs, then you would feel it. Well, Jesus, as he comes to Jerusalem and he sees it now, he feels it. And yet our emotions are corrupted by sin, aren't they? So often we cry about things that we shouldn't cry about. And we are unmoved by things that we should weep about. And we don't know what it is to be truly human, but Jesus is the perfect man. And Jesus weeps. He weeps as a man, a righteous man, over a wicked city. He he weeps as a righteous office bearer. And his tears give us hope. Because, brothers and sisters, we have a prophet, priest, and king who is one with us in humanity and is one with us under the covenant, born under the law. We don't have a high priest who is untouched with our infirmities, but he knows what it is to live in this world. We are to give thanks for a Savior that weeps, a Savior that so longs to save that it grieves his heart. And in Christ we We learn what true humanity is, to which we are being restored, that we are not to have cold and callous hearts to people dying in their sin. We are are to be moved by this. I've been studying in the Canons of Dort, the doctrine of election and so forth. Never should we think of the doctrine of election as some license to have a calloused heart. So one writer says, any theology that leaves Christians indifferent or unfeeling toward the plight of the unconverted, is fatally flawed. But not only are we shown what true humanity is, to which Jesus is restoring us, but we are given great comfort. We have a Savior who knows, who knows the sorrows of this life. In times of pain, we may run to Jesus. In times of our tears, we may seek the one who, who cried, When our hearts are heavy for a loved one or friend who is unresponsive to the gospel, we know that Jesus has already been there. Christ wept over those unresponsive to the gospel. We have a great Savior. The person they have grieved 
It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in human nature. But secondly, this morning, they notice the peace they have rejected. Not just the person they have grieved, but the peace that Jerusalem has rejected. Jesus, as he weeps, he laments in verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace. Peace is what everyone seeks, right? People want to be at peace. People, people want to, to be secure. Well, well, God was purchasing for his people peace through the death of his beloved son. When we think about peace, we often think about peace of mind. We're not worried or anxious. Peace in our homes, our marriages, our relationships. Peace in the church. We're not divided, but we're together and all these kind of things. But, but all of those kinds of peace flow out of peace with God, our creator. And we broke peace with God, didn't we, in the garden. We rebelled, and God became our enemy now, not smiling upon us, but, but set against us. And how could peace ever be restored? How could, how could we ever bring back God to be our friend? And the answer is we couldn't, but that God is doing what we could not do. This is the, the moment in history he has sent his beloved into the world to make peace. To lay down his life, bear the curse upon our sin. To sacrifice himself as both the priest and the victim. Christ came with the offer of peace. He went about preaching the kingdom. He went about demonstrating a kingdom of peace by healing people and casting out demons and showing compassion and feeding the thousands. And all of these were demonstrations that he was bringing a kingdom of peace for those who would have it. But the condition of peace is that you have to confess your sin. You have to turn away from self-righteousness. You have to trust in Jesus. You have to come to him. And Jesus says, Jerusalem... If only you had known the things that make for peace. But Jerusalem is into the counterfeits. Counterfeit peace. Jerusalem is looking for a Messiah that will bring them lower taxes. Get these Romans off their backs. Looking for a Messiah who will give them political independence. Honor in the world. I'm looking for Messiah who rides into town a stallion and not a colt. They fail to see their deepest need as peace with God due to their sin. They're not longing for salvation from sin and conversion to holiness. They're seeking peace as the world seeks peace. And in this, they're rejecting Jesus, the very one who's riding into town, who's saying, I come humbly to take your place beneath God's wrath. They're rejecting this. It's suffering for Jesus. And this whole episode is really about Christ Jesus, isn't it? He is, he is suffering here. As the sin bearer and as the one already being despised. And yet what a glorious peace for all who will have it. I mean, if you, could, if you could bottle this and sell it, right, you would, you'd be the richest person in the world. If people could buy it with money, if you could say, here it is, here it is, here's the antidote, here's the thing that could bring peace into your life, people would, would give their life savings for it. To have peace with God, to believe that God is for me and he's not against me, 
to, to believe that, that God is my shepherd who always guards me and keeps me. To believe Psalm 121, he watches over my going forth and my, my coming in all the days of my life. To have a peace which passes all understanding. To know that there is no condemnation for me. I stand accepted before God. This is the greatest peace in all of the world. This is the greatest thing in all of the world. To know beyond a shadow of doubt that nothing in all of the world can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. What a joy to have peace. To know the things that make for peace. Don't take for granted, brothers and sisters, what you possess this morning. Don't think for a moment that because God gives to the worldling sunshine and rain, and even some good cheer, and they're able to smile and laugh. Don't think for a moment they have what you have. Or if you do, just go visit an unbelieving funeral. What a sorrow. What a sorrow. Somebody on their deathbed doesn't know the Lord Jesus, and now their conscience is racked with fear. And their past failures and all the wrongs they've done to people begin to be rehearsed in their minds. When despite all their confessed atheism, they know in their heart of hearts they are about to stand before the judge. Oh, but to know peace. To be able to depart this life knowing that I stand righteous before God in Jesus Christ. That I'm accepted through the blood of Jesus and in him I stand. Peace. Christ wants his people to know the things that make for peace. But notice, thirdly, the period of grace that they've exhausted. Not just the person they have grieved and the peace that Jerusalem has rejected, but the period of grace that they have exhausted. Christ weeps because they've squandered the opportunity to know God's grace. Two times he suggests that. When he says in verse 42, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. And then he he says it again in verse 44 at the end. You did not know the time of your visitation. Christ Christ sees the the, the door of opportunity being shut. It's, It's coming to a close here. The Messiah has arrived. If you don't receive him, what's left? He says, but now it's hidden from your eyes. You have so rejected and so rejected and so rejected that you're, you're being eclipsed with blindness now. Time is running out. And Jesus weeps over this. That as the sun goes down, it's the blackest of night for souls that have not known Jesus. As we hear the, the passionate weeping of our Lord Jesus here. And this is a reminder to us, isn't it, both in terms of our own life and for the sake of evangelism and missions in the world, that there is an urgency about the matter. Seek the Lord while he may be found, Isaiah cried out. And and the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The day of salvation does not last forever. No one should procrastinate. The gospel message is not ours to do with as we please. It belongs to the Lord, and he may remove it at any point. 
Some people think of the way it's been. You know, churches are always open, gospel's always preached, I can come any time. This is just the way it goes on forever and ever. The Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, There is a time of visitation when those things which belong to our peace may be known by us and known to good purpose. When we enjoy the means of grace and great plenty and have the word of God powerfully preached to us, when the Spirit strives with us and our consciences are startled and awakened, then is the time of visitation which we must use. It's easy to presume, isn't it? Presume on the word. Presume upon the opportunity. You might know the name of Robert Murray McShane, famous Scottish minister of a couple hundred years ago. He died at, I think, age 29, a young man, but he is known for his holiness and love of the Lord. McShane, in a sermon on the passage, proclaimed, When the Spirit strives, that is a day of grace. All that are converted are converted when the Spirit strives with them. But the Spirit will not always strive with men. When the heart is greatly moved under the reading of the Bible or under the preaching of the Word, there is little doubt but that the Spirit is striving with that heart. When the mind is led seriously to look back at the life it has led or when the heart shrinks from some sin, there, can be, there cannot be a doubt that the Spirit is striving But if this be resisted, then he goes away and sometimes never to return. My spirit shall not always strive. And so he he preached these words, Brethren, if you have any such awakenings in your heart, do not quench them. It is easy to quench the spirit. Go back to the world and to the den of perpetual business or plunge into sensual sin, and you will soon be rid of all awakenings. But remember Christ's word, even as such as you, oh, that you had known the things that make for peace. Christ says, you become blind. But now they are hidden from your eyes. You resist and you resist and you resist. And now the very Messiah of God comes riding into your city and you can't see him. And so there's an urgency about the gospel. And an urgency for you and me to respond to that gospel and to keep responding throughout the course of our lives. J.C. Ryle, remember, wrote that book, Thoughts for Young Men. Thoughts for Young Men, in which he's, he's urging the young men to take seriously their youth because he suggests that most who are converted are converted in their youth. So don't put it off. And then J.C. Ryle writes, Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan cares not how spiritual your intentions may be and how holy your resolutions so long as they are fixed for tomorrow. Oh, give no place to the devil in this matter. Tell him, no, Satan, it shall be today. As I read those words of Ryle, I was reminded of Augustine, St. Augustine. Remember the Augustine of, of Hippo, modern-day Algeria, but he, 
He goes up to Milan where he meets Ambrose. Remember, uh, Augustine's born, I think, 354 and dies in 430. Augustine is a, is a pivotal picture, uh, person in the, in the history of the church, right? The, the, the free grace that we proclaim today, Augustine fought for that against Pelagius. And, and Calvin quotes Augustine all over. We, we owe great debt to what God did through Augustine. But remember, Augustine, for the first 30 years of his life or so, was enslaved to lust, and he goes to Milan and he meets Bishop Ambrose and he's, he's taken in by, by the eloquent tongue of Ambrose and by the kindness that Ambrose shows him. And he, he begins to go to church there. He writes, Augustine writes in his confessions, In Milan I found your devoted servant, the Bishop of Ambrose. At that time his gifted tongue never tired of dispensing the riches, richness of your corn, the joy of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. Unknown to me it was you who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. Augustine's Confessions, if you haven't read it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a big book, but it's, it's a prayer to God. He's talking to God. Augustine writes, I was all ears to cease upon the, his eloquence. I also began to sense the truth of what he said, though only gradually. I thrilled with love and dread alike. I realized that I was far away from you and far off. I heard your voice saying, I am the God who is. I heard your voice as we hear voices that speak to our hearts, and at once I had no cause to doubt. And yet he didn't come to the Lord. I was astonished that although I now loved you, I did not persist in enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you, but I was soon dragged away from you by my own weight, and in dismay I plunged again into the things of this world, as though I had sensed the fragrance of the fair, but was not yet able to eat it. I was still held firm in the bonds of woman's love. So he's hearing the gospel. He's seeing something of the beauty of the Lord Jesus, and yet he can't let go of his sin. I began to search for a means of gaining the strength I needed to enjoy you, but I could not find this means until I embraced the mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. And then what someone has called one of the most important days in the history of the church. Augustine writes, O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from my slavery to the things of this world. So Augustine was with his, his best friend, Olypius, and they had been talking about this monk, Anthony, in Egypt and how He'd been so devoted to the Lord. And as Augustine thought on this, he, he just hated himself that he was so devoted to his lust. He writes, there was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will. And 
entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I was held back by mere trifles. They plucked at my garment of flesh and whispered, Are you going to dismiss us? From this moment we shall never be with you again forever and ever. That's how sin speaks, isn't it? It's how the pleasures of sin speak. Can you you really tell us to go away? We're going to leave you forever. And while I stood trembling at the barrier on the other side, I could see the chaste beauty of continence and all her serene, unsullied joy as she modestly beckoned me to cross over and to hesitate no more. She stretched out loving hands to welcome and embrace me. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? And then he hears a voice. Here's a child's voice saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he he begins to rack his mind. Is there a game that children play when they say, take up and read, take up and read? And he decides it, it must be the Lord urging him. So he runs back to where Olypius is and he grabs the book of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul, deciding that he must open it up to the first place and read there. And the place he opens up is to Romans 13, the last words, the last two verses of Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so, for in an instant, As I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. What a glorious story of conversion. How long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? Oh, Jesus grieves because Jerusalem refuses to do that. And now these things are hidden from your eyes. People of God, we may not presume upon the gospel or upon our God. We are called to respond. As the psalmist says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And wherever the Lord points out our sin, wherever the Lord presses upon us, we are called to bow and to confess and to repent. And to refuse to do so is to take a very dangerous way in this world. Today is the day of salvation. And the weeping Lord Jesus is making clear to you that his desire for each and every one of us is that we believe, that we continue to believe, that we repent and continue to repent and be saved. He's not secretly hoping that we won't come. He's not secretly hoping, you know, kind of like the 
the guarantee on the back of the package. The company knows you're not going to call and return it, so they can give all kinds of guarantees. But that's not Jesus. He's, he's weeping. He's longing that this ministry might be fulfilled, that he would gather the lost sheep. And so he's urging. And these words are recorded in the Bible for our urging. And if there's anyone here today and you've been putting off and saying tomorrow and tomorrow, Jesus is warning you this morning, they may not be for you another tomorrow. Today. Today. Today is the day of salvation. What a glorious day. What a wonderful day. What a Savior who weeps who weeps over sinners, bids you come and says, I have done everything to make for your peace, to give you everlasting peace with God, and thereby to give you peace of conscience, to give you peace that there's nothing in this world that God will not turn to your profit. Jerusalem refuses And all that's left then is punishment. We've seen the person they've grieved, the peace they've rejected, the period of grace they've exhausted, and finally this morning, the punishment they have secured. The punishment they have secured. Jesus says in verses 43 and 44, the days will come. Your enemies will surround you. They'll level you and your children. They'll tear this place down. It happens about 40 years later. The Romans besiege Jerusalem. People inside begin to starve to death. It's horrendous. Those who try to run and escape the city are captured and crucified outside the city. When the Romans break through in five months, they slaughter everyone, children, old people, except for the ones they preserve to be killed at their victory celebrations or gladiator games. It's horrendous. Walls are torn down. Great atrocities committed. You can read Josephus, the early historian, if you want all the grisly details. Jesus weeps because he sees that the wrath of God is coming and the Roman swords And Jesus declares this. He has to declare this if he's a true office bearer, right? I mean, if a doctor tells you, I must operate. I must operate on your heart now. And then he says, but if I don't, you know, you're going to be fine. Well, then he undermines everything, doesn't he? If he says, I must operate now, then he's obligated to say, because if I don't, you're going to die. Jesus has to say this. It's the truth that that if you won't have the things that make for your peace, then all that's left is destruction. There's no alternative. Christ preserves this in his written word for us this morning that we may know it. But there's not an alternative to the peace of Christ. You're not going to find peace somewhere else and, and you're going to be able to work it out in the world. If Jesus didn't say this, think how many people would be stumbled to see all these Jews rejecting their Messiah and then everything just goes on okay? 
I guess, I guess you don't need Jesus. No, Jesus has to announce as the true office bearer that the alternative to me is eternal destruction, of which the Roman destruction is just a part. But Jesus, in announcing this, is proclaiming his own work, isn't he? Because if the alternative to peace with God is absolute desolation, then how do we get peace with God except through the desolation of our Lord Jesus? The first one to have Roman hands laid upon him is not is not these Jews of Jerusalem. The first one to have Roman hands laid upon him is our Savior. He's nailed to a cross. He's cut off from everyone. Stands alone, surrounded by the eternal wrath of God. And willingly bears that for us. So that the devastation that he warns of here doesn't need to be ours in time. Unless the Lord wills, but certainly not in eternity. That instead, because Christ took our place beneath not just Roman wrath, but divine wrath. We are surrounded forever by the love and the mercies of God. What a glorious Savior. Marching willingly into Jerusalem, coming so humbly to lay down his life, weeping tears over sinners who will not have him, and preserving this word that throughout the centuries all who follow may hear Jesus saying, Come to me, I will give you peace. Some of you celebrated many. Palm Sundays and many Good Fridays and many Easter's. But the most important thing, of course, is not just that we know about all these events, but that we've embraced the things that make for peace. So those are ours in Christ Jesus. As our, His Spirit gives us a faith to believe on this Christ and to cling to this Savior. How glad we be that we have such a compassionate high priest who is ours now, not weeping tears over our destruction, but whose heart sympathizes with us in all of our weakness as he prays and pleads for us, for God's blessings upon us, safety, keeping us, preserving us, and bringing us to be where he is, where at last every tear shall be wiped from the eye. And the dwelling of God will be with men and he will be theirs forever. Well, people of God, give thanks. Give thanks for a Savior who wept. Amen. Father in heaven, we are humbled by such a glorious revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts be moved. Drive away Satan, who teaches us to be callous to the things of God. Prick our consciences. And give us delight in our Savior. Let us rejoice in the peace that we have with you, and therefore... The certainty we have that you'll avert all evil or turn it to our profit. For our sins are removed and God is our friend. 
And if God is for us, then who can be against us? And Father, then work Christ in us that we'd have hearts of compassion upon the lost. That we'd be urgent in our witness and in our prayers for a world that's dying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.